The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Unmet Needs in the Treatment of Primary Sjogren Syndrome, Expert Insight on the Therapeutic Potential for CD40 Pathway Blockade with Dr. Stephen E. Carsons. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash FFX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Stephen Carsons from the NYU Long Island School of Medicine in Mineola, New York. Welcome to this educational activity on primary Sjogren's syndrome. Today, we will address unmet needs in the treatment of primary Sjogren's syndrome and provide some insights on the therapeutic potential for the CD40 pathway blockade. First, we'll take a closer look at the pathogenesis and disease spectrum. Sjogren's syndrome is a common autoimmune rheumatic disease that is nearly as common as rheumatoid arthritis. Sicka symptoms or dryness is common in the general population and may occur up to 3%. The ratio of primary Sjogren's syndrome to what is often referred to as secondary Sjogren's syndrome, that which occurs in overlap or together with other well-established rheumatic diseases such as RA, is approximately one-to-one. Major issues with primary Sjogren's syndrome are oral and ocular dryness, leading to end-organ damage of the eyes and mouth, and extraglandular manifestations. The differential diagnosis we will review when we discuss the classification criteria, but important considerations include other autoimmune diseases, including IgG4 systemic disease, viral infections, particularly hepatitis C, whose extrahepatic manifestations can mimic Sjogren's, and lymphoma, whose incidence is increased in primary Sjogren's, estimated to be about 18-fold compared with the population at large. As we will review, no specific approved therapies in the biologic realm are yet available. In Sjogren's syndrome, normal ductal and acinar architecture is replaced by mononuclear cells. This is comprised largely of lymphocytes and plasma cells. Often, the first symptom of primary Sjogren's is a dry, parched mouth. Accelerated dental decay is an important end-organ feature of Sjogren's syndrome involving the oral cavity. Many symptoms that a dry mouth patient experiences are due to superimposed chronic erythematous candidiasis and can be locally or systemically treated by antifungals. Unilateral or bilateral parotid swelling, as indicated by the picture in the lower corner, may be present in up to 50% of the patients, and Sjogren's syndrome patients are at an increased risk for salivary duct stones and concomitant infections. In contrast to the dry mouth, where dryness is immediately perceived as a manifestation, the dry eye is often referred to by patients as presenting with a foreign body sensation in the eye. Other ocular symptoms include thick mucus threads, photophobia and light sensitivity, and ocular fatigue, 
especially when looking at screens. A Shermer test is a classical diagnostic test for dry eye and is quite sensitive. However, examining the eye with a slit lamp microscope after the installation of a vital dye, such as rose bengal or lysamine green, is more specific. An ocular staining score, as demonstrated in the lower photograph, is part of the revised criteria for Sjogren's classification. Neglected dry eye can result in severe infection and loss of vision. And this is one of the most serious complications of primary Sjogren's. In addition to dry eye and mouth, Sjogren's syndrome may involve immune cell infiltration of epithelia lining the lung, the tubules of the kidneys, the GI tract, the genital tract, and the skin. Dry skin is a common feature of Sjogren's syndrome and can present with severe itching and excoriation. Genital dryness in females can lead to infection and painful intercourse. Nasotracheal and bronchial dryness is more common than often perceived and can lead to nosebleeds, nasal congestion and stuffiness, crusting, and chronic cough. This slide depicts the ACR-ULAR classification criteria for primary Sjogren's syndrome. And as is evident, the most important diagnostic maneuvers are a minor labial salivary gland biopsy with the demonstration of focal lymphocytic sialadenitis, a cluster of greater than 50 mononuclear cells, which is defined as a focus, and one must have one or greater within four millimeters squared of tissues. This is assigned a weight of three. Anti-SSA or Rho antibodies are also assigned a weight of three. The oculus staining score is assigned a weight of one, as is the Schirmer's test that was demonstrated. And a reduction in unstimulated whole salivary flow to less than 0.1 ml per minute is also assigned a weight of one. A score of four or greater classifies a patient who would meet these inclusion criteria for research purposes. We mentioned we would revisit these exclusion criteria as a mirror to the differential diagnosis of primary Sjogren's. A history of head and neck radiation can cause severe oral dryness. Active hepatitis C infection, HIV AIDS can cause infiltration of the salivary glands with CD8 positive cells. Sarcoidosis and amyloidosis can cause metabolic deposition, replacement of the salivary glands. Graft-versus-host disease and transplant recipients can cause infiltration of the glands with autoreactive lymphocytes. And IgG4-related disease can cause significant swelling of the lacrimal as well as salivary glands. A quick review of normal salivary function is important to understand the pathophysiology of Sjogren's syndrome. Salivation is under neural control from ganglion and central nuclei, which result in muscarinic 
acetylcholine stimulation of acetylcholine receptors on salivary gland epithelia, as illustrated in the inset on the right. Infiltration of the gland with mononuclear cells, such as cytotoxic T cells, B cells, can disturb glandular function. Cytokines released by these lymphocytes can also cause dysfunction of these exocrine glands. And B cells have been shown to synthesize antibodies against the muscarinic acetylcholine receptor. Existing therapies provide muscarinic stimulation, but do not address the underlying immunologic lesion. A closer look at Sjogren's histopathology reveals that the salivary glands are affected by a T-cell predominant lesion with the T to B-cell ratio approximately 2 to 1, and that more recently, Th1, Th17, and T follicular helper cells have been demonstrated in lesions along with plasma cells and monocytes. Plasmacytic dendritic cells and classical myeloid dendritic cells are of extreme importance in presenting autoantigen to the immune system. However, more recent evidence suggests that the salivary gland epithelial cell itself is an active participant in the immunologic lesion. And these salivary gland epithelial cells can drive disease via antigen presentation, co-stimulation, and by undergoing apoptosis and release of nucleosomes, which can contain ribonuclear protein antibodies and antigens such as SSA and SSB. This slide shows the central role of salivary gland epithelial cells in the pathogenesis of primary Sjogren syndrome. In addition, this highlights the role of the innate immune system, which can sense viral RNA, endogenous RNA, and perhaps bacterial products by toll-like receptors and drive innate immunity. In addition, stimulation of plasmacytic dendritic cells in green can lead to a type 1 interferon signature, which has been demonstrated particularly in SSA rho-positive Sjogren's patients. Classical dendritic cells, as shown by the light blue cells, stimulate classical adaptive T-cell immunity and the release of T-helper cytokines such as TNF-alpha and interferon gamma. The right-hand side of the slide shows involvement of the B-cell arm of the immune system where T-follicular helper cells via interleukin-21 can drive B-cell activation also mediated by BAF, B-cell activating factor. And it's been shown that active germinal center formation correlates with disease activity and lymphoma risk. By undergoing apoptosis, the salivary gland epithelial cell can provide autoantigens to further drive this process and protease activation, all contributing to glandular dysfunction. If you notice, some of these participants are highlighted in red. 
And these represent available therapeutic targets for new therapies for Sjogren's syndrome. So we will now talk about these current and emerging therapeutic options for primary Sjogren's syndrome. Some general principles for the management of Sjogren's syndrome are indicated on this slide. These highlight a multidisciplinary approach, often involving a rheumatologist, an eye care professional, and a dentist or oral medicine specialist are an important triad for the management of this disease. Before treatment, patients should undergo a thorough pretreatment evaluation and workup to determine the severity and the extent of the disease. For instance, is it limited to exocrine organs or is there extraglandular manifestations present? The approach to management is generally the same for primary or secondary Sjogren's, particularly regarding the sicker symptoms, but of course depends on the extent and severity of the disease and the consideration of extraglandular involvement. All patients benefit from non-pharmacologic and preventive interventions, including patient education, self-care, smoking cessation, and providing optimal moisture in their environment. Patients with mild Sjogren's syndrome, particularly in whom sicker manifestations alone are present, may only require local treatment, such as eye drops or moisturizing oral solutions. And for patients with mild to severe Sjogren's, including extraglandular involvement, may also benefit from systemic therapies, including traditional oral immunosuppressive agents and biological agents. This slide shows an approach to drug therapy according to organ manifestations and disease severity. So patients with sicker, dry eye, dry mouth, or the other sicker symptoms we reviewed may require topical moisture replacement and the cholinergic oral secretagogues, such as pilocarpine and sevemoly. Patients with systemic disease and organ system involvement use therapies today that are similar to those used for SLE and RA. And the treatment of glandular lymphoproliferation and the more severe extraglandular manifestations often includes conventional DMARDs, antimalarials, and other immunosuppressive agents. Does gland histopathology suggest an immunopathogenic hierarchy? In other words, because we mentioned the lesion had a T-cell predominance, would an approach involving inhibition of T-cell cytokines uh, be the first approach that should be taken? And this was conventional thinking, and early studies looked at TNF-alpha blockade and this slide shows a randomized controlled trial of infliximab in primary Sjogren's syndrome called the TRIPS study. And unfortunately, both at week 10 and at week 22, infliximab was not significantly different than placebo in the outcome measures used for that study. 
So one could ask, should anti-TNF approaches be abandoned for the treatment of primary Sjogren's syndrome? And over the past several years, they largely have. What about B cells as a target? Are they logical targets for Sjogren's therapy? Well, although focal lymphocytic sialadenitis is a T-cell predominant lesion, B cells are plentiful in regions in minor salivary gland biopsies, as indicated by the red staining in the four minor salivary gland biopsy specimens depicted on this slide. B cells are associated with germinal center formation, as seen in panel B, and with increased focus score. We know that Rowan-Law antibodies produced by B cells are hallmarks of Sjogren's syndrome. And we also know that engagement of B cell CD40 promotes class switching and higher affinity antibodies. Clinically, there is association of Rowan-La with extraglandular manifestations. And importantly, most Sjogren's associated lymphomas are B cell derived. The first study to show an effect of B cell depletion for the treatment of Sjogren's syndrome was a non-randomized comparative trial of continuous rituximab administration at six-month intervals conducted by Karubi and colleagues. This study resulted in a significant improvement in STI, the European Sjogren's Syndrome Disease Activity Index, compared to the oral DMARD comparator. As subsequent randomized double-blind control trial of rituximab in primary Sjogren's known as the TEARS trial was conducted and published in 2014. The primary endpoint analysis was the proportion of subjects achieving a greater or equal than 30 millimeter improvement on visual analog scales in two of four patient-reported outcome measure at 24 weeks. The composite outcome measure and the individual outcome measures did not achieve statistical significance. The STI disease activity score was slightly improved, but was not statistically significant. This was followed by the Tractus study this randomized controlled trial included only SSA or Rho-positive primary Sjogren's and included 133 patients equally divided between rituximab and placebo. The primary endpoint was 30% reduction in two measures, fatigue and oral dryness at 48 weeks. The response rates were not significantly different at all. What are some possible factors contributing to the failure of Sjogren's rituximab studies to meet primary outcome measures despite promising preliminary data? One is exclusive reliance on composite patient-reported outcome measures. Perhaps there is an underemphasis on biologically relevant outcomes, such as biomarkers, or salivary gland ultrasound. The outcome reporting scale in tiers was millimeters versus percentage. 
In other words, a reduction of 30 millimeters from a starting point of 60 millimeters actually requires 50% improvement. The outcome reporting measure for the Tractus rituximab study was six months after the last dose. This timing interval is usually when rheumatologists would offer a second cycle of rituximab. Another issue is patient selection. The mean SDI in tears was 10, possibly not enough difference to demonstrate improvement. Another issue was definition and assessment of musculoskeletal pain in trials, and this can confound results. The rituximab dosing regimen should take into consideration the fact that B cells repopulate and that growth factors may respond to B cell depletion and cause secondary immune activation. When the authors of TEARS themselves used somewhat different statistical methodology in analyzing the data, there was demonstration of statistical significance in the change in fatigue over time and the change in dryness over time. There was even a statistical significance for the global visual analog scale. A post hoc analysis of the TIERS data was published in a separate paper using a somewhat different outcome measure, which the authors called the SSRI, the Sjogren's Syndrome Responder Index. This isolated outcomes that were responsive to therapy in the TIERS study. The authors identified a core set of five responsive outcome measures and looked for 30% improvement in two of these five. Their data showed that the proportion of subjects with an SSRI 30 response at week 24 was 55% for rituximab and 20% for placebo, a statistically significant finding. Similarly, the authors of the Tractus study also did a sub-analysis looking at the effect of rituximab on the salivary gland ultrasound score in a sub-study. The rituximab group had greater improvement in the salivary gland ultrasound score compared to placebo. In consideration of the above studies, the Sjogren's Foundation Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee issued the following recommendation for the use of rituximab in primary Sjogren's. Rituximab may be considered as a therapeutic option for xerostomia in patients with primary Sjogren's with some evidence of residual salivary production, significant evidence of oral damage as determined by the clinician and for whom conventional therapies, including topical moisturizers and secretagogues, have proven insufficient. This was a weak recommendation due to the lack of strong randomized control data or meta-analysis demonstrating an effect. What are some future directions for Sjogren's syndrome therapeutics? Well, one of the most important is the continued development of more accurate and more sensitive outcome measures for the sicca and systemic components of the disease. 
signals from clinical trials suggest the potential role for B-cell modulation. So there are continuing rituximab studies, studies of anti-B-cell activating factor with the drug belimumab, abelimumab and rituximab combination trial, and examination of therapies directed toward modulating co-stimulation in primary Sjogren's. And a preliminary study called the Billis study examined 30 subjects with a primary outcome measure similar to the SSRI 30. In this study, 18 of 30 patients, 60% achieved primary outcome, and the authors noted improvement in the Shermer unstimulated salivary flow, SDI, and SPRE, the European Sjogren Syndrome Patient Response Index. A recent study looked at the safety and efficacy of subcutaneous belimumab and IV rituximab in patients with primary Sjogren syndrome. I'll focus your attention to the left-hand series of bars, which show SDI improvement. And this was better in all groups as compared to placebo and highest in the combination groups. Salivary flow also tended toward improvement in the combination group. And the most right-hand group of bars reveals that infections per patient were not different than placebo, an important fact when looking at dual immunomodulating agents. We'll now turn our attention to studies looking at the modulation of co-stimulation. As we know, co-stimulation provides the second signal for lymphocyte activation after engagement of the antigen presented by the MHC complex to the T-cell receptor. CD40 on the antigen-presenting cell, which could be a salivary gland epithelial cell or a B-cell, interacting with CD40 ligand on the T-cell, and an inhibitory co-stimulatory signal, which we're familiar with, CTLA-4 blocking the action of CD28 on the antigen-presenting cell CD80, CD86 receptor. Co-stimulation promotes immune cell proliferation, cell survival, antibody class switching, and antibody affinity maturation. Thus, its modulation should be beneficial in an autoimmune condition. A preliminary study look at abatacept in primary Sjogren's syndrome. The authors reported improvement in SDI, ESPRI, and rheumatoid factor and total serum IgG levels. However, a controlled study of abatacept administered weekly for 24 weeks noted an SDI improvement of only 1.3 units for abatacept and placebo and thus no significant difference between the groups. In looking at the phase three study more closely, one can see that SDI was not significantly different, although biomarkers on the whole significantly improved. One of the issues in clinical trials of Sjogren's involves 
FDSDI, and as can be seen here of a survey of 665 participants in a Sjogren's syndrome registry, most of the SDI domains had no activity. Some had low activity, but the minority had high activity. Only 42% of these 665 patients had an STI score of greater than 5 out of 123, and only 6% had an STI score of greater or equal to 14. Again, showing little room to demonstrate improvement. Nonetheless, STI continues as an important measure of outcome for this disease. Now, co-stimulation was investigated using a unique anti-CD4 monoclonal antibody initially designated CFZ533. These are the results of a phase 2A randomized controlled trial receiving either 3 milligrams per kilogram subcutaneously or 10 milligrams per kilogram IV for 12 weeks with a crossover at 12 weeks to an open label extension. Here again, the primary outcome measure was the change in SDI at 12 weeks and cohort two, the IV cohort, demonstrated a positive change in SDI of 5.64. In addition, in looking at biological markers, a reduction in CXCL13, which we noted correlated with B-cell activation and germinal center formation, was noted. And we can see that in addition to the change in SDI, there was improvement noted in the physician and patient visual analog scales, a fatigue inventory scale, a slight improvement in SPRE, the patient reported index. This shows results of the two cohorts, including the crossover results. And as can be seen in the slide, particularly the 10 milligram per kilogram cohort two, a continued improvement on the CFZ533, now named escalamab, through 32 weeks of study. So when we look at possible reasons for biologics not meeting endpoints in Sjogren's syndrome, we have several considerations. We have inadequate outcome measures, our patient reported outcomes, the most important versus an organ-based disease activity index, perhaps versus an outcome set that combines both sicka symptoms, extraglandular manifestations, biologic markers such as serum IgG and CXCL13. Is the dose of these agents adequate? Do they have access to salivary and lacrimal glands? And here there's an interesting contrast between the basement membrane of the epithelium and biologic agents that have shown efficacy for rheumatoid arthritis, which involves the synovium. The epithelium has a true basement membrane containing type 4 collagen and laminin, whereas the synovium has a loose connective tissue framework lining the epithelium. The timing of the treatment measurement to endpoint measurement is important with respect to the kinetics of B-cell population 
in studies that examine B-cell depletion, co-stimulation involving B-cells, or B-cell activating cytokines. These same cytokines sometimes are induced secondary to depletion of B-cells and other immune reactants. And the stage of the disease, would we do better by identifying patients who could benefit from early treatment? So take-home points, TNF inhibitors have not to date shown efficacy for Sjogren's syndrome. Rituximab may have therapeutic benefit in selected cases. Improvement in clinical trial design for Sjogren's and outcome measures is needed. Newer insights into Sjogren's immunopathogenesis have identified additional therapeutic targets, including co-stimulatory molecules. And a positive signal has been identified for CD40 antibodies in phase two studies. This ends our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity informative and useful to your practice and encourage you to download the supplemental materials. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by the University of Cincinnati. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FFX 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.